did they do it? How did they do it? You're listening to the How Did They Do It podcast with Kostas Panayotou. Welcome to How Did They Do It, the uh, podcast where you can join me in conversations with inspirational individuals who found their freedom and purpose by doing what they love doing most. Some people are quite difficult to pigeonhole. You have on one side monomaniacs such as uh, Captain Ahab from Moby Dick who just going for the one thing, and that's the title of the book by the way, uh, The One Thing which is worth reading. Uh, where the author um, talks about why he believes you should be pursuing the one thing that, uh, and you become really, really good at that one thing that is really your big passion in life. Um, and there are people, uh, just like me perhaps, who just do a little bit of um, everything. And um, and I think Andrew Loss is in that category, the guest in today's podcast. Andrew Loss is a, a marketer, he's a, a podcaster, He's also an artist, a musician in a number of different bands and projects. He's an author, he's a photographer, and I suspect much more, he's a family man as well. And um, I'm always interested and fascinated to uh, hear from people like Andrew about how they combine their passions and how they somehow manage to create a unified whole with all these different passions um, so that people actually know that uh, all these activities, whether it's his photography, his Uh, writing, his marketing, what is there that connects all these things together? That's what I wanted to know today. And that's what I found out in this very interesting conversation with Andrew Loss, who, by the way, is known as Andrew Culture in some circles, as he will explain himself later. So join us in this conversation and find out why Andrew is doing marketing for humans, what is the importance of connection, why you should start the podcast as well, and why you should have a plate list rather than a bucket list. Hi, Andrew. Good afternoon. How are you? I am in rude health. I'm very well. Thank you, Kostas. In rude health. What a brilliant way of introducing yourself. <laughs> and uh, I, mean, I mean, I know you from, from networking events and I know you from the music that you make, which I love and we're going to go to that later. I know your uh, work as a marketer. And by the way, you call yourself a marketer for humans. Oh, very much so. Yeah, I'm quite intrigued about it. I mean, what is the opposite? Is that marketing for robots or how does that work? I, I use this this phrase because um, SEO is what I mostly do, so search engine optimization. And I've been doing it a very long time. And, and for a lot of that time, a lot of people who work in SEO appear to be working for the Google algorithm. So they're kind of jumping and saying, oh, what does Google want now? And then kind of changing their websites and, and other things they do just to fit what Google wants. And I mean, Google's always wanted the same thing. They've wanted us not to muck them around, basically. And I think it's really important that all the work you do with SEO and digital marketing focuses on the humans that you're going to speak to. Because ultimately, just getting clicks to your website, even if you rank really well, isn't going to get you more leads. It's not going to get you more customers. If your website's kind of gobbledygook that's been formulated just for the, the Google spider. So... Google Spider is not a human. Your clients and customers are humans. So, yeah, do SEO for humans. Yes. You know, the way you explained it now, Andrew, it's, it makes completely sense. And I fully agree with you, isn't it? It's, the, it's about humanizing the process of, of, of marketing, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think the last couple of years have, have brought a sharper focus on that. 
I think you know one of the things I've learned from from kind of speaking to you, Costas, is that if you're trying to get something across that's overly business-like or isn't quite who you really are, then it's probably not going to make you happy, and it's probably not going to get you the type of work that you want to do. So that that's a case of marketing again, not not as a human or for humans, but trying to meet this kind of imaginary ideal. And the reason I believe quite strongly that trying to reach that ideal is nonsense is because it's such a subjective thing that we all have. You know, my opinion of the world will be markedly different to your opinion of the world. And there's a lot of people in the world. So I don't think I can really uh, market to all four and a half billion people, <laughs> whoever it is. But by being human and letting my humanity leak through in uh, little tidal waves, hopefully there's enough people out there who who will be you know tolerant of me for who I actually am rather than the quality of the suit I don't wear. <laughs> so it's, it's about that connection then, isn't it? With the connection with other humans. And, and of course, as I mentioned in the introduction, you're a musician as well. So do you think it's, it's a similar principle there in music as well? Because for me personally, music is also about connecting with humans, really, because you know, I could sit in my room and, and do all sorts of nice stuff and listen to them by myself, but it doesn't really give me satisfaction unless I actually can share it with other humans. I believe it's it's absolutely the same thing. Um, there's a, a photo of me that was taken by a friend, and one of my bands that we're in, it was our last gig, it was our farewell gig, and it was a nice full room, um, you know, friends turning up, we did it locally, and we'd, we'd done all right as a band. And there's a picture of me squatting on the floor with my bass guitar, and I'm grinning from ear to ear. And when I saw the picture came through, I knew exactly what was going through in my head at the time. I was in this busy room, and we played this song that's like 20 minutes long. Most of it is kind of fairly droney. There's no singing, there's no choruses, there's not even really verses. It's, it's a whole load of stuff. And I looked around the room and I could see a lot of the people in the room about 18 minutes into this track were, were kind of losing interest. They were you know, looking at their phones or wandering out to the smoking area or going to the bar. But I could see there was a group of people, like you know, several people dotted throughout the room who were absolutely transfixed. And that absolutely thrilled me because I thought, no, we, when you're a musician or a marketer or just a human, you don't have to try and appeal to absolutely everybody, but making that connection with just a handful of people is just a marvellous thing. And it's, well, it makes me very happy. I imagine kind of most people kind of uh, get some joy from, from making that, that human connection. Yeah, it's a two-way thing. It's in music. It, I always find it is. I mean, you, when you create music, you, you are doing, you're doing for yourself, of course, to, to some extent, to express yourself, but... There is also an element of reaching out, and of course, there's the element of receiving. People love to, to hear your creative output because I suspect they think they understand a bit more, perhaps, of the person Andrew behind it, or what goes in your mind, or the emotions, or something like that. Absolutely, and and the the connection can be really surprising. I've made some fairly, well, and still do make some fairly unusual music. Um, it's kind of electric. You know, electronic experimental stuff and even when I find somebody who does like it I al almost always find out that what they like about it isn't something I've seen in it myself and I find that absolutely fascinating but it just goes to show to me that if I tried to make an album of acoustic 
songs about love then it wouldn't be me and i don't think anyone would find anything in it i think there's something if you're genuine in your music then people will take what they want from it and there's a real connection with that i mean even really famous people i mean the local hero where i live in ipswich is is ed sheeran and you know i think most people in the world have heard heard of ed sheeran and because he's so famous he's a bit of a whipping boy for the musical elite you might say and i'll always defend him because i think he he does still sing from the heart and i think he does make music that is good and is for him it just so happens that millions and millions of people also like it yeah i mean i agree and i'm not a fan at all musically from ed sheeran but i have a uh, no, nor am i to be honest <laughs> I have a i'll defend him that <laughs> just like yeah, it's, it's a respect yeah, just like you, I have a respect for the artist and Ed Sheeran and, and his backstory as well of how he actually he really fought very hard to get to, to where he is now and he's enjoying it. I think there's an element of um, slight envy, isn't it, for us underground musicians like, uh, you know, it would be nice if my music had also that impact and that sort of uh, big appeal, but it's not, it, it depends on the genre of music you play as well. Oh, absolutely, and he... Locally in Ipswich, I'm I'm sometimes asked if if I've ever done a gig with Ed Sheeran, and the same goes for a lot of musicians around here. The answer is probably, because when he first I can remember him first starting to play in town, and he used to go to gigs with his acoustic guitar and just sort of say, "Do you mind if I just do a few songs?" So I don't know how often he was playing. It seemed to be all the time, but he did that with no, you know, he might have had a game plan to become very famous, but ultimately. He came across very genuinely as somebody who wanted to get up and play some songs, which is ultimately what he's still doing, but just somebody else drives him there and he, he gets a better dressing room than I do. <laughs> well, he, he gets a dressing room is, is a start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, at least he's getting a dressing room. That's, uh, you, know, that's <laughs> you get somewhere. Um, something completely different than Andrew, because it really caught my attention on your um, social media pages on Facebook. I see this bizarre sort of recurring videos coming up where you sort of come into a room and you start talking about something and you kind of walk off camera and then you never really finish this sort of the sentence, if you like. So I'm just kind of intrigued. What, what, what is that? What, what, where is that leading? Or is that a mystery? It's my own silly sense of humour. Yeah, so those videos, I'm telling the story of a book written by Mark Twain, and it's not a famous book at all, but it's one that I genuinely love. It's called uh, Roughing It, and he wrote it when he was quite young, travelling across America. So I decided I wanted to make a video about it, but then I thought it would be funnier to make the video in lots of different scenes and scenarios, and I filmed all around the country doing this, but I always walk into shot already talking about the story and then walk out of shot still talking about it, and I've done quite a lot of them now. And it is for my own amusement, but the amazing thing is, several people I know really like it, and it has caused a bit of mystery. And when I see people in the flesh, they ask where the story's going, or does it all tally? Am I going to edit them all together? And people actually ask me lots of questions about it. So it's mostly for my own amusement, but what I've learned from that is you don't always have to tell the whole story, I don't think. I think especially with social media, people want to give people you know they want to share a story in its entirety and for one thing i'm not sure that many people want to hear the whole of your story <laughs> i mean they might do and that's fine but you know not even my wife wants to know my whole life story you know i've got to retain some mystery there 
<laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, about the importance of storytelling, that, that's something I fully agree with you. And, um, and again, I think based on the things we discussed so far, music and marketing, there's a common thread there. It's, it's, it's about, and even this, this story, it's also about people being intrigued about people. Okay, just tell me more, you know, I'm, I'm curious. I, I found it quite intriguing watching this video. I didn't know where it's now. Now that you explain, I understand what they were about, but I certainly found it intriguing. It's okay, there's something going on there. I'm, I'm intrigued, I want to find out more about it. That's, that's the start of every, every marketing, I guess, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. There's um, a, a quote by one of my famous, uh, one of my favorite authors, a guy called P.G. Woodhouse. And he said, it's not the story that's the thing, it's the telling. So he he's um he wrote seventy plus books and he, he was very famous in, in the UK and and America but his whole thing was that you don't have to have a good story you've just got to tell it well and I guess those silly videos are a part of that way it's in it's in a lot of the things I do it's it's uh what's the phrase for musicians always leave them wanting more when you come off stage. That's right. So, that's what they so, say. <laughs> that's it. So, I mean, I've been told several times by people who've heard my music that they definitely don't want any more. And <laughs> that, that's that's also fine. That's OK. <laughs> well, that, and that's something to be said then about knowing your audience, isn't it? Because you you know, you, you say that earlier, you know what you make the music for. And the same for the marketing. You're not going to market to four billion people. Likewise, your music is not for four billion people. Maybe Ed Sheeran's music is, but not the music that you're making. And that's okay to know that, isn't it? I mean, I make quite underground music, which is very niche, but I know the people who are into it are really into it. I mean, they, they, you know, they buy everything I release and they have followed me across the Europe when I play gigs and things like that. So know your audience, isn't it? You know, if it's small, then at least you know them. If it's big, great, but at least like connect to them. Absolutely. I mean, the, I think when I first met you, you said that you made Funeral Doom and I knew exactly what you meant. I know what that is. I like that. So I kind of I went to listen and I really get that, that knowing your audience is really important, especially in marketing. But in my experience, I think it's also important just to take a chance and just sometimes just throw something into the world and see what sticks. I think I, I'm concerned that some of my friends who say things like, I wish I could write a novel or, you know, I wish I could start a band, but I don't know what people want. I think, well, chuck something out there. No one's going to come around to your house with a baseball bat just because you make a song that they don't like. Well, I hope not. Anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> You would hope so. So especially with music, sometimes, well, a lot of the time it is just taking a chance. And I'm constantly, I try and constantly do that at least sort of once or twice every couple of years I'll try and make something that's completely out of my comfort zone sometimes it sticks sometimes it doesn't and I can never predict the ones that will stick but yeah once you get traction and you know what your audience wants then you know you, you can kind of go with it so your funeral doom if you decided to introduce ukuleles or something else it, it might not go down quite so well with the people who like your music because you, you know you know you've established yourself and you have traction now I would suspect, yeah, that wouldn't go down very well. I think I agree with that, you there. That being said, I'd love to hear a Costas and a ukulele side project. I think that that would be brilliant with the ukulele and your, your very deep kind of funeral growl. I think <laughs> you could have something new there. Yeah, that's that's a challenge that, I'm, you know, I'll think about it. I, I might have to <laughs> teach myself ukulele, but I'll get back to you on that. 
Okay, so uh, you are, um, I say a little bit also of a podcast mentor for me because you very helpfully sat and uh, you spent time explaining to me how to start a podcast and this podcast actually started after other conversations with you. you wow. Sound very easy. And so you, you know, you're obviously, you have your own podcasts. Um, what, what do you get out of it as a, you know, someone who sort of runs podcast? Because you, you are clearly quite passionate about it, the way you explained it to me. I thought, wow, it must be really fun running a podcast. I want to have my own as well. It's partly the joy of creation. Uh, that, that really is a big part of it. You know, I, I make music and I, I, I write and I'd say that in my work life, it's also very creative. So it's just another outlet. It started off like having a new toy. Like, you know, you remember as a kid and you open a gift at Christmas that you weren't expecting and it suddenly becomes your favourite thing. It's a bit like that. It's just, wow, there's there's a, a channel here. There's a way of creating something that I've not done before. And I think it's fair to say even now, it's, you know, podcasts aren't at saturation. There's still not many people making them. And that was part of the appeal as well. Because, for example, there's I think there's three blogs posted every day for every human on the planet. So the number of blog posts is epic. So the audience is, is quite saturated with podcasts. There's like one podcast for every million people or something. You know, it's, it's, well, that's interesting to hear. I thought it would be more of them. Oh, I'm, I'm kind of guessing at numbers kind of very, very vaguely here, but I, I, they are based loosely on facts, just not numbers I've looked up recently. So <laughs> there, there's a bigger audience. You can be a, a big fish in a small pond with, with podcasting. And it could be a, a great way of, of reaching people. I, I support a local eating disorder charity and they, they wanted to start a podcast and they have, of course, many messages that are very, very important and they weren't really sure where to start I don't think so I just said well just start you know I'll, I'll support you and and get you up and running and they've now done I think 56 episodes and they've been listened to getting on for 60,000 times and that's amazing for for somebody basically a lot of the podcasts are them in conversation with each other there's, there's two two ladies and sometimes they get guests and for their conversations and their their positive message to reach that many people is remarkable it's it's absolutely incredible in fact if they were singles that would be a lot of singles or a lot of albums to sell wouldn't it that would be i just thought of that that'd be pretty amazing mm, ideas ideas <laughs> mm. so i mean one so one tip you definitely give to people is just go ahead and do it isn't it because uh, people procrastinate too much about this like anything else and what other tips would you give to people who just want to start their own podcast um, in terms of perhaps marketing and promoting a podcast? Is there any particular sort of tips that you would give as a marketer? The the usual stuff, like make sure you share it on, on social media, make sure you, you try and get people talking about it. But the absolute best way of publicizing a podcast is to speak to somebody who has a larger following than you or somebody who's, who is more established than you because you're joining kind of a a brotherhood or a sisterhood or you know you're joining a group of people who are very passionate about what they do and if you join in in that passion then things grow and also if somebody does have a lot more followers than you when they're on your podcast they will tell their followers that they've spoken to you so you're you're kind of very nicely you know finding a wedge you know and, and getting into somebody else's audience it's the same thing with support bands you know, when you're in a band, 
you always support bands that are bigger than you and it's because it's an opportunity to get yourself in front of somebody else's audience who hopefully is fairly aligned with what you do totally agree yes and i can definitely see how it can work exactly the same way with podcasts and um, i mean you are a very creative person andrew so you've got your music you've got your marketing work you've got your podcast and uh, you're an author as well so that's something I, I, I perhaps don't know as much about it. So can you tell me a bit more about Andrew Laws, the author? What have you been up to in terms of your writing? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, I write under the name Andrew Culture, which is um, it's just a pen name and a stage name that I've had for, I don't know, well over 20 years. In fact, most people know me as Andrew Culture rather than Andrew Laws. In fact, I've, I've even had clients who didn't know that wasn't my real name until I sent them the first invoice. <laughs> so I, I always wanted to write. Um, I started off very, very young. When I was about seven or eight, I wrote a book about aliens visiting Earth to steal cheese. Um, I didn't really get anywhere with that. I ended up just plagiarising um, a book called The Pilgrim's Progress, which was written in, in medieval times. <laughs> um, then I wrote a book that was the A to Z of cats, and I sent it off to the publishers when I was about nine. Um, I've not heard back from them yet, but I'm still holding, still holding out hope. Still crossing my fingers for that one. <laughs> it's never and, too late. It's never. And um, I learned a valuable lesson then: never send your only copy of a manuscript to a publisher. Um, <laughs> but ever since then, I've just, I've just. It sounds odd, but I've always n known that I would write books. It was just a matter of doing it. You know, it's, it's another one of those things of. The, the worst thing I think I could have happen at the end of my life is to be laying on my deathbed and just think, oh man, if only I'd tried those things. I mean, there's some things you you don't want to try, but on the whole, I mean, what would the point of that be? That that to me would, would be a grim end. So I've, I've always written and the first proper book I wrote was a travel book. I traveled to um, Boston in America and myself and a friend who he was a writer for terrorizer magazine at the time actually but we we wrote a book traveling from plymouth rock so where the first pilgrims landed and we traveled down the states and we went to president obama's inauguration the first one and we wrote a book about that and it was awful <laughs> well my bit of it was my, my friend was already a professional writer so his bit was really good but i can remember him saying I'm really glad you've learned how to use paragraphs when he saw my side of it. And I just thought, oh man, I think I've got some, some way to go here. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, I hawked it around the, the agents and, but at the time Stephen Fry had written a book about America. And to be honest, out of the two, I would prefer to read his rather than mine. So I kind of left it there. But then I decided that because with that book, I sat down and I just, you know, splurged it out I decided the next one I needed to learn how to write a book so I, I did a lot of studying and, and I learned how to plot and how to properly write and I wrote a book called Getting It this is about 11 years ago now and it was a romance novel so I wrote it about there were some of my friends who were in it and I had to apologize to them when I published it because it was not some of their uh, more more glamorous moments I was writing about and I thoroughly enjoyed the process, so I started another one, and the feedback was was all right. It was fine. Um, got quite good reviews on Amazon. Um, Americans didn't really get it. A lot of the reviews were saying things like, 
I don't understand British humour and I think I made the mistake a lot of writers do I tried to be too clever so the next book it's just all fart gags and it's not quite that kind of it's not quite that that sort of base but it is it's a lot more accessible but I I stopped writing it when my daughter was born about 10 years ago because my brain just stopped working but I will finish it and to force myself to finish it I've started podcasting it so I've started serializing it and it's also useful because I can't remember what I wrote so I need to sort of remind myself what's in it and eventually I'm going to run out of chapters and at which point I will have to finish writing the book but there's there's loads of other books in me it's why I walk funny it's a very silly joke I love the challenge you set yourself. Okay, you know, I'm going to finish the book one way or another, so I'm actually putting it as part of my podcast. That's a quite clever way, isn't it, of, uh, of, of motivating yourself to to finish the task. Oh, absolutely. It is it is for me. You know, it's it's another kind of cliche for authors that they write for themselves, but that that is what I'm doing. It, it makes me laugh when when I've been recording it. For the podcast, I have to stop quite often because I start I start giggling. I, I still think it's really funny, and it's it's quite interesting reading something that I wrote ten years ago because I was expecting to hate it. But some of the things I'm thinking, oh, that you know, that kid wasn't too bad. <laughs> kid, I was like <laughs> thirty five at the time, but you know, it's 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 been a, it's been a really enjoyable process. It's been a reminder of why creating something brand new is is such a joyous thing to do. That you know, that none of that existed in the world before I before I made it and same with your music and any sort of positive interaction you have with any other human being you're creating something that previously wasn't there you're changing the course of the world with you know things that you might think are very small sorry I sound like I'm I'm coaching you now Costas <laughs> oh I love it yes I, I need some coaching as well Andrew I'm always saying yeah. practice what you preach right so oh absolutely you yeah. others, but you also need to be coached so uh, <laughs> mm. by all means how do you, I mean, you, you kind of touched on it earlier when you say, okay, when your daughter was born, it's almost like your brain stopped for temporarily and then you, you had to stop writing. I just wonder how do you sort of go about combining all this stuff? Because you're a very creative person doing all this different stuff, writing books, um, have a running podcast, not just one, but several, several musical projects, not just one, right? Your marketing mm -hmm. work and I'm sure other sort of activities in your life. How does that go with your family life is that something that you integrate or do you see them as two separate bits i don't see any sort of one aspect of my life is completely separate from the others so you know for example i'll use my marketing skills to to market my music and i oh well, for the first time i have involved a member of my family in the music i have a new band and my wife is doing the vocals my wife who i've been with for nearly 30 years and i've never managed to get her to sing before and she 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 joined in because she heard me sitting where I am now trying to do vocals and she was laughing at me and I said right tell you what you think you can do a better job you know you come and do it and she sat down and she absolutely nailed it first take literally sat down sung stood up there you go and she was right <laughs> but yeah fi finding time you you have to make time that's it there, there's there's nothing else to it again I don't want to be on my beth deathbed saying I I didn't have time to create I'd be comfortable with saying I didn't have time to create as much as I wanted to because, you know, <laughs> as passionate as you are about so any art, more, isn't there? there's always more and there's always things that, that just have to be done. But, you know, try and find joy in everything and 
nothing becomes a chore hopefully not, i even enjoy unloading the dishwasher sometimes you know put some music on and it's, it's some time just to move around a bit rather than sitting at my desk i'm coming across yeah. like a right hippie now aren't I? <laughs> i've got i've got actually an exercise as part of my group program as well and i always found that one of the most potent um, uh, coaching tasks if you like it's called the um, it's a rocking chair exercise and basically the rocking chair exercise is like a visioning exercise where you ask people okay so imagine you're 90 years old or whatever you want to you you think as old because sometimes people say oh, i don't want to be that <laughs> as old as you want to be you know just imagine you are old and close to the end of your life and you're sitting on your rocking chair and you're just thinking of all the things that you have done in your life and the things that you are proud of what are they so this is something that stimulates people to think creatively and um, perhaps like create a bit of a vision and then the next question is okay what can you do you know and what can can you start doing today that will start creating these memories that you want to have at that age when you're looking back at your life and that's something is connecting the big vision with your day-to-day -day life isn't it and i think it's a quite powerful way of doing it so I, I love the message that you are giving which is you know what start doing now the things that you don't want to regret not having done by the time you come to the end of your life absolutely and if there's too much i think that's a good thing <laughs> you know if there's there's still things there's loads of things i want to do i just started getting into traveling kind of before the, the pandemic and seeing other countries i want to do more of that i want to ride my bike more i want to be able to ollie a skateboard i want to the list goes on and on I, i've never liked the phrase you know people talk about having a bucket list mm. and i always think you should have a you know a, a plate list you should have things on your plate now because you know there's you you can't offset living you know it's i think my parents generation it was you go to work when you're 15 you you stop work at 65 then you can do what you want and it's the punk rock that ruined my life because I, I, from a very young age, I thought, well, can I do those things now? Yeah, you know, I, I don't want to. I'd rather rather do them while I'm fit and able, or reasonably fit and able, rather than when I'm older. I say older because sixty-five doesn't seem that far away anymore. <laughs> it, did, it did when I was younger. Now, I'm like, oh yes, that's I can see that on the horizon now. It's coming towards me. <laughs> It's crazy you know, when you start thinking about these things, like the, the stuff you were listening to, like the stuff I, I got into, uh, me not metal music, pop music in the 90s. And you think that's actually 30, over 30 years ago. And, uh, and suddenly like you just realize uh, how much time has actually passed. I, I worked out that when the Nirvana record came out, the amount of space between then which is very much our, we're roughly the same age, it's very much our youth or sort of early 20s. There is more space between then and now than there was between then and Sgt Pepper by the Beatles coming out. Wow. Because Sgt Pepper, I think, was 67 and that Nirvana album was 90. So it's like 22. Was it? Uh, yeah, yeah, so 20, like 24 yeah. years. So Sgt Pepper, 24 years till... Smells like Teen Spirit and you know, Never Mind by Nirvana. Now, Nirvana to now is. Do you know? I'm really hoping my maths is right there. It is right. It's 30 years, oh, isn't it's it? It's absolutely right. Yes, yeah. We're yeah. over 30 years since then, isn't it? So there you go. So N Nirvana's, Nirvana is no different to my grandparents when I was a child listening to Glenn Miller. 
you know, that sort of the, the age difference. <laughs> There's a thought. That's just absolutely crazy when you start thinking about uh, the way time flies. But also, again, the message coming back to your to the message because let's start doing now the things you love doing. And you know what? Don't worry about what you would do at the age of 65 because I'm sure you'll find other things to do then and keep yourself busy. So don't delay things for then that you can do now. That is the message I would give as well. Well, also, some of the things that you may think you want to do when you're 65 may not exist. I wanted to, when I was younger, I wanted to play a Peel session, you know, for, for John Peel. That's right. I, <laughs> wanted, I wanted to play on Top of the Pops and I wanted to fly on Concorde. Now, I missed out on all three of those things, um, but actually, I can't really see a way I could have done them. I'd, so, okay, no regrets. The, yeah, I'm not going to be too no hard on myself <laughs> for, for not, not flying on Concorde. <laughs> no regrets, but a good lesson, though, in the sense that, okay, so some of the things that you delay, might, you might even not even be able to do by the time. A absolutely, yeah. That's a serious lesson there. Mm. Mm. I agree. Okay. Um, well, I know the conversation was kind of jumping from one thing to the other, Andy, but I think that was the right way of doing it because you are into so many different things, which I find all equally fascinating. And I think Thank all you. of this comprised together the person Andrew Laws or Andrew Culture, for those that know you uh, under <laughs> that name. So I'm very, very grateful for the time that you made today for the, this conversation in my podcast. And I guess the question I want to ask to you is, you know, where can people find you? Really, people want to find more about what you do, perhaps a bit more about your music or about your marketing, because I know they're all different worlds. Where's the best place for them to, you know, to start to get to know you a bit better? Okay, so for the work side of my life, uh, say, which is kind of integrated, it's andrewlaws.com. That's where you'll find out everything I do on that side. On the more creative side of my life, I say more creative because the work is creative. On the more creative side, if you go to andrewculture.com, there are links there for my photography. Um, there will be stuff for some of the filmmaking I do. There are links for the music, links for the books, links for the podcasts. There's probably some other things. It's just like a dumping ground, really. <laughs> I sort of remember I've done something and then try try and remember to add it to andrewculture.com. So there you go. That's that's the seed. That's that's the seed that plants everything else. Brilliant. And you measure their photography. So there you go. Yet another thing, another aspect of your creativity we didn't even discuss today. So it keeps going. <laughs> <laughs> Always leave them wanting more, Costas. Always leave them wanting more. And with that note, thank you very much, Andrew. It has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you very much, Costes. God bless. And um, God bless. I never say that. I don't know where that came from. Um, just, yeah, rock on. Be excellent to each other and have a laugh. <laughs> Always have a laugh. Thank you. You are listening to the How Did They Do It podcast. Do not forget to subscribe by following us on Apple, Spotify or Anchor for weekly conversations with inspirational individuals who found their own freedom by doing the thing they love doing most. And you can also follow me on costasthecoach.com for weekly blog articles that will inspire you to find your passion and purpose in life. <laughs>